Our text this morning is Luke chapter 22, the first 30 verses. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where would you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would use your word to reach us, to change us, to bring us ever closer to yourself. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we are back now in the Gospel of Luke, picking it up in the passion narrative of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is perhaps the most famous section, not just of Luke, but of all of the Gospels. It is the tradition that we have received that this narrative of the Passion, the Last Supper, the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the very first cohesive narrative that was used by the church to testify to who Jesus was. And this shouldn't be surprising to us, because the whole of this Gospel of Luke has been building to this point. After all, it's the reason why Luke wrote the book, to explain to us who Jesus was and what he had done for his people. And so, today we look at this incident on the Passover, the Last Supper as it is so often called here in our minds. And I'd like us to see three things from our text this morning. You see, it isn't just about Jesus being with his disciples. The first thing we see is the plot against Jesus. That there is a plot against our Lord. The second thing we see is the preparation of Jesus in light of this plot. And then the third thing we see is the provision of Jesus for sinners like Peter and John like you and me. A plot, a preparation, and a provision. Let's begin then by looking at the plot. You will recall what is going on here at this time in the Gospel of Luke. The background we have is that Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem, the capital of this area, and they are here for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the Passover. Luke tells us that this is near. There are thousands upon thousands of pilgrims who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. They are filling up all of the inns, all of the hotels, and all of the homes in this area. Jerusalem would swell to many times its size at this time. But Luke reminds us that he is writing not just to Jews, but he's writing to people like you and me as well. He's writing to the whole world. Do you see this in verse 1? He says that the Feast of the Unleavened Bread drew near, and, and that's what's called the Passover. He's helping us to understand. The, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was a feast of seven days in length that began with the Passover and the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And then for seven days on from that, they would celebrate with joy the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. But there's some people who aren't that excited about the Passover being here now. That's the leaders of the Jewish people, the chief priests and the scribes. I think we might include the Pharisees among them, but the the hatred of our Lord Jesus Christ has come to such a fever pitch that even though the Pharisees have been against Jesus all this time, 
the politically well-connected chief priests and scribes have pushed them to the side and said, let us take care of this. And they're afraid. And in this sense, they're not so different from people that live down the street from you and from me. Not so different from people we see on television. Perhaps not even so different from us at times in our hearts. You see, they're afraid. They're afraid of Jesus because first and foremost, they're afraid of losing control. They want to be in control. They want to call the shots and they're afraid. They're also afraid of being wrong. They know that Jesus has been teaching things, correcting them, pointing them back to God's word. And because of this, they have been at this a long time trying to get Jesus. You remember all the way back to Luke chapter 4, that there was a plot to kill Jesus after he preached a sermon in his hometown. And then in chapter 6, the Pharisees tried to trick Jesus to catch him. And then again in chapter 11, they were laying in wait for him, trying to spring a trap. And all of this has peaked at Luke chapter 20, how they have sought to destroy Jesus, and they're trying to come up with any plan that they can to destroy Jesus. Now, think about what the plan is. This is the most religious time of year for Israel. It is like rolling Easter and Christmas all into one. Now, just imagine what it would be like at this time of year that the leaders of the Jewish people, instead of focusing on worshiping God and praising God as they ought, they are concerned about how to kill someone. It seems inconceivable, doesn't it? It's as if someone would wake up on Christmas morning, yawn, and say, well, the gifts can wait. How can I beat someone up? I mean, are you even able to have that kind of an attitude on Christmas morning? There's just something about it. And that's exactly what we see here at the Passover. They have one purpose, and that purpose alone is to kill Jesus. As a matter of fact, Matthew tells us that they gather together at the home of the high priest to plot the death of Jesus. Luke tells us that this had become something of an obsession with them. That they were seeking how to put Jesus to death. And the the way that Luke writes this is that they were continually seeking. They were trying all the time to find a way that they could put him to death. We might say to get rid of him. They want him off the scene. The word here for put to death has the connotation of an execution. You see, what they want is they want Jesus gotten rid of and they don't want to share in any of the blame. They want to find a scapegoat. They want to find a way to get rid of Jesus that keeps their hands clean. This is the plan against Jesus. But they have a problem Do you see it here? They were continually seeking how to put him to death, but they feared the people. You see, they were afraid of the people. They were afraid to do something to Jesus in the presence of the crowd because they thought it would cause a riot. Now, this shouldn't surprise us either because after all, what was Jesus doing? Jesus always helped people, didn't he? Unlike them. Jesus always taught people, unlike them. Jesus showed that other people had value, 
unlike their view. You see, it wouldn't surprise us that they would think Jesus would be popular amongst the people. They had seen him come into the city. They had seen him hailed as a king. And they knew that if they took action out in the open, it would not go well. So what do they do? They sit and they get together and they ask themselves over and over again, how can we fix this problem? Have you ever had that happen to you? You have a problem you just can't fix and you run it over in your mind over and over and over again? You think you'll never find a solution. You can imagine. They're just sitting in a room. Well, we can't, we can't get them in the daytime because there's people everywhere. And, you know, if we wait until the Passover's over, maybe he'll leave. And how will we get him? You know, he's here now. What can we possibly do? I don't know what we would do. We would need to know where he's going to be in advance. We would need to know when we can catch him off his guard. How could we possibly know in advance when Jesus would be vulnerable? There's a knock at the door. And we see the second part of this plot. It's Judas. Judas comes and initiates contact with the chief priests and with the scribes. Now, can you imagine their shock? They might even have said to themselves, well, the only way we could possibly get at Jesus unawares is if one of the twelve came here and volunteered to hand him over to us. Well, that's exactly what happens. Who is Judas? We know a bit about him from this gospel. and We know more about him from other portions of the scripture. But who is he? He's one of Jesus' closest followers. He's one of the twelve. There are disciples who come in and out of Jesus' life, but not the twelve. They remain. They're constant. They've been with him for years They've suffered a lack of food and they've had to camp outdoors and they've gone from place to place and they've been talked about wickedly. And Judas is one of these twelve. He is one who appeared to be very trusted by Jesus and by the others. After all, we know from the scriptures that he was the one who kept the money bag. He was the one who had the money to pay for food when they needed it or lodging when they needed it. And so then the question comes to us, why does, Jesus do, why does Judas do this? Now, we just can sometimes get so close to the situation, we assume, well, Judas did it because he was wicked and he was probably always plotting it. I don't think that's the case. There's something here that turns Judas. Now, it's possible, although we're not exactly sure, that Judas had simply had enough of Jesus' view of the Messiah. That Judas wanted power. That he was tired of walking around in dirty sandals. That he wanted to stay in nice hotels. That he wanted to tell the Romans what to do. That he wanted to be in charge. And he wanted Jesus to throw some weight around. And it had become more and more clear that Jesus not only hadn't done that, but wasn't going to do that. I think that's possible. But I think what's also more likely and what probably tips him over the edge is greed. This is where Judas shows his true character. We know that he was susceptible to greed because in the same place that we're told that he kept the money bag, we're told that he used to dip into the money bag 
to get himself things that he wanted. He was so sure no one else was looking. And so he would help himself. He would steal. And this is where we see him doing things that are outrageous. A woman comes to anoint Jesus with precious ointment. And he says, Lord, why did we do this? We could have sold that. You know how much money we could have given the poor? Of course, he had no intention of giving the money to the poor. He just wanted to get the money. You see, there's a greed that's gripped his heart. He thinks he wants more. He deserves more. And if we're not careful, this kind of greed can can grip our heart as well. You see, who Judas is, and this seemingly sort of minor sin that puts him over the edge, is an important reminder to us about our own relationship with the Lord. It tells us first and foremost that being close to Jesus does not guarantee spiritual success. No one was closer to Jesus than Judas. He was with him all the time. He would have known all his sermons. He would have been able to recite the things that he had taught. But you see, it's not being close to Jesus that matters. It's having your heart changed by Jesus that matters. And Judas had never been changed. He was happy to hang around the edges of the truth. He was happy to be thought of as a part of Jesus' kingdom. You see, it's funny. We think in the scheme of sins in 21st century America that a little bit too much love of money is pretty minor. It's not like violence. It's not like rampant immorality. We think it's a small skin. As a matter of fact, it's a sin that we probably participate in ourselves. We wish we had more. We pine away for better vacations and better homes. But you see, Judas here tells us that even the smallest of sins can devastate. That's the nature of sin. Because you see, it's not just the leaders in a conspiracy. It's not just Judas. There's someone else involved in the plot as well. It's the enemy. It's the adversary, Satan himself. You see, this is a cosmic battle. This is about so much more than who will have influence with the Romans. Or who gets to receive the temple tax. You see, the enemy, the enemy of Jesus, the enemy of your soul, Satan himself, has been trying to destroy God's kingdom since Eden. He tricked Adam and Eve into sinning. And then he tried to destroy Israel in Egypt through the power of Pharaoh, trying to get Pharaoh to kill all of the male children. And then he tried to stop Jesus from doing the work that God had given to him by using Herod to destroy all of the young boys. He even came to Jesus himself, as we saw in Luke chapter 4, and tempted Jesus. This is a cosmic battle that Satan wants to win. And so he comes, we see here in verse 3, and entered into Judas called Iscariot. Now, what does this mean? I think when we think about this, we consider more often than not the kind of demon possession we see in the movies. We expect maybe that Judas's eyes changed colors. Maybe his head spun around. He became some sort of devil robot. Unable to think for himself. Unable to act. 
But I don't think that's what's going on here. You see, Satan wants you to think that about himself. He wants you to think he's unbeatable, that you can never defeat him, that he's invulnerable, that when he chooses to act, no one can resist him. Satan wants us to be afraid of him. That's not, I think, the kind of control that's going on here. I think we see more in the the acts of Judas doing what he wants to do and Satan egging him on, pushing him forward, whispering in his ear. Because you see, Judas has already decided that he's had enough of ministry with Jesus. That he wants some power for himself. That he wants money for himself. So Satan is exercising an influence over him. A powerful influence. But this is a battle that was lost by Judas. It was not something in which Judas was an unwitting pawn that somehow he was unable not to betray Jesus. What Judas was focused on was his sinful desires. That was all of his thought. And you see, where he should have been focusing on is in the promises of God. If he had focused on the promises of God, he would have been able to resist the devil. That's what the scripture tells us. That we are to resist the devil and he will flee from us. But you see, Judas didn't want that. He wanted his own sinful desires. This is something I think that's important for you and for me to remember. You see, it's so easy to look at Judas and to say, I'm not like Judas. I would never betray Jesus. I'm okay because I'm so much better than Judas. When in reality, the only way that we stand is to focus upon the promises of God. If we're not focused on the promises of God, if we are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, we will fall. Take heed that you stand, Paul says, lest you fall. And the enemy here senses victory. He senses his long battle is finally nearing its end. Because you see, for Satan, victory is the death of Jesus. He sees that as total victory. The chief priests are filled with joy and with glee. Judas is continually looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. We see this here in verse 6. And Satan thinks all he needs to do is to get rid of Jesus and all will be one. But there's something interesting going on here. There's not just a plot against Jesus. There's also the preparations of Jesus. You see, if we view this the way we view a film or a story, we know what we might expect. We're used to people who are wicked creating plots and trying to attack those who are good. And usually what happens is the good guys aren't aware of what's going on. That they have to think quickly in the moment when the trap is sprung and that's the only way that they can avoid it. They have to respond Two events. It's always the bad guys driving the narrative. But not so here. Because you see, Satan believes victory is only found in the death of Jesus. And the irony is, is that Jesus knows that victory is found in his death. He is completely aware of what is going on. He is aware of the plot. Now, think about this. 
He is in complete control. He is in Jerusalem. And when is it? It is the celebration of the Passover. It is the feast celebrating God's redemption of Israel from sin and slavery through sacrifice. Through the blood. This is the perfect opportunity to show the redemption of God's people through the blood of Christ. Jesus has arranged to be here at this exact time for this exact purpose. It's Jesus who's putting his plan into motion. He is not at the whim of Satan or the priests or even of Judas. He is in complete control. And he shows us this. He sends Peter and John to go prepare the the Passover. Do you see that in verse 9? Verse 8 and verse 9. And they say to Jesus, where would you have us do this? Now, you have to imagine this. All of the best hotels in Jerusalem have been booked for four months. All of the flea-ridden motels have been booked for weeks. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pilgrims here. To try to find a place to have the Passover, the day of the Passover, is ridiculous. And what does Jesus say? He says, behold, we might translate it this way. Listen up. Pay attention here. I've got this under control. Don't worry about it, Peter. Don't lose sleep over it, John. Let me tell you what you should do. He says, you go to the man who is carrying a jar, and you follow him into the home, and then you speak to the master. Now, we hear this, and we are struck What is Jesus doing here? Is this some kind of supernatural trick that Jesus knows what's going to happen? I don't exactly think so. I think there's actually something more significant going on. You see, a man carrying a jar would be highly unusual in this day and age. Carrying jars was something women did. Men, when they carried liquid, water, or wine, would carry it in skins. You see, it's like this. It's as if I said to you, I'm going to send you to someone that can help you with your problems. Go out to La Sentara and find the person with the cell phone. And you think, the cell phone? Everybody has a cell phone. But what if I said to you, go and find the person carrying one of those big gray 1980s cell phones. There's only going to be one. Nobody else has those anymore. You see, Jesus has prepared ahead of time. And this shouldn't shock us. Because if Jesus knows that they're plotting against him, if Jesus knows that Judas is trying to betray him, if he knows the plan is to catch him alone and unawares, why would he possibly let Judas know where they're going to gather for dinner? You see, he plans it all ahead of time. And then he sends the disciples out to prepare it. Because you see, Jesus knows that this meal is incredibly important. He will die. But on his time, and on his schedule, and for his purpose, not for anyone else's, Jesus is in complete control here. He is foiling Judas and his plot. Now this should comfort you. Because you see, this same Jesus who has his own plans and preparations, the same Jesus who is sovereign and in control is the same Jesus that you serve. 
He's in control. He's in control of your life. It may not seem like it now. It may seem like everything is spinning out of control, but you have to understand Jesus has not let go. He is there to care for you. Will you trust Him now? Will you seek Him out and place your faith in Him and say, Jesus, I need help. I can't do it on my own. The pain is too much. The hurt is too much. The sin is too much. And Jesus says, I know my child. I'm in complete control. You see, Jesus has prepared the Passover for His disciples. He's prepared a time of thanksgiving. And then, we think about this not only as the Passover, but as the Last Supper. You see, Jesus is not just focused on the big picture. There is a very big picture happening here, right? Jesus is going to be betrayed, be killed, be buried, and rise from the dead. Jesus has a pretty big weekend planned. And yet... In the midst of all of that, he does not forget the individuals he is with. You see, sometimes I think we are tempted to see God as dealing only with nations and big things, and he can't be bothered with us and our problems. Here Jesus shows us otherwise. He wants to gather together with his disciples. He wants them to know that he loves them. After all, he's the one who brought the first Passover, isn't he? And he comes and he reclines at table with his disciples. Even as you would do with Passover, you would get together with your closest friends. I have to tell you, I hate to burst your bubble, but the painting of the Last Supper is completely wrong. They weren't sitting at a table. They were lounging together as best friends did on couches eating. And you see, Jesus wants to celebrate this Passover with his friends. He's very emotional. Look at verse 15. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He wants to help them understand what his death will be all about. He's, as I said, he's very emotional. He says, I deeply desire with a deep desire. The language is very vivid. And he wants them to understand and to go beyond sorrow and death. You see, he wants to point them to the redemption that's going to come. This is what he says here in verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You see, this is the first cup of drinking of the Passover. Matthew and Mark don't include this. Luke does. Luke wants to encourage us. The first cup is a cup of thanksgiving, of joy. And Jesus says, I'm drinking this cup of joy with you now, but I won't again until, until everything is consummated, until our blessing is here before us, until the wedding feast of the Lamb is where we are found. He wants to show them that change is coming. Look at verse 18. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's telling them the kingdom of God is coming. What I am about to do is going to usher it in. Have hope, have faith. This is what he does with his disciples. But you see, this meal is not only a Passover. It's not only the Last Supper. It's also the Lord's Supper too, isn't it? 
Because at the same time that it is the last Passover that he will have with them before glory, it is a beginning. And Jesus wants them to see the link. To see the link between the Passover and his death. To have communion with him, a communion that will last for all eternity. And so he takes the bread and he gives thanks for it, for it is to be received with thanksgiving. And he says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We see Jesus says, this is my body. He wants the disciples to understand that he is giving himself for their health, nourishment, and salvation. It is not, as some fancifully believe, somehow magically transformed into Jesus' flesh. It doesn't make any sense because Jesus is standing there in his body. Why would he say, here's my body, here's some more of my body? And this is typical of the way Jesus speaks too, representatively. When Jesus says, I am the door, he doesn't suddenly become a plank of wood. When he says, I am living water, he doesn't turn into some kind of liquefied gel. He's describing for the disciples a greater truth. And that greater truth is that his body is given for them, that he has sacrificed for them, that they can have hope because of what he has done for them. And they are to remember this. And all of this is true for you and for me too. You see, we know that He is sacrificed. We know that He is real. We know that He has given of Himself that we might have salvation and we are to remember what He has done. And then Jesus takes a second cup and He says, this cup is the new covenant. It is the new covenant in my blood. And when He speaks of a new covenant, this is something that we are used to talking about. But for the disciples, it must have thrilled their soul Do you understand what the new covenant means? The new covenant brings new hope. It brings change to our hearts. It is more inward than the old covenant. It signifies a deeper relationship that we have with Jesus. It is more tying us to God than the old covenant. It gives us a greater knowledge of who Jesus is. And we have complete forgiveness based on the promises of God. It is a new covenant in Christ's own blood. Now, I want you to think about this truth. Jesus never calls upon you to sacrifice to be right with him. He never says, you need to pony up. Jesus sacrifices that we might be one with him. It's his satisfaction that satisfies finally the wrath of God and brings us into relationship with God. It makes us a part of the family of God. And then Jesus moves to begin to describe his provision for them. His provision especially for a sinful people like you and like me. He reminds them of the cost of what is going on. He tells them that His betrayal is at hand. Look at verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. And then he says something very interesting. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. 
Now notice what's going on here. Jesus is declaring the complete sovereignty of God. That God has decreed this to happen. And then in the next half of the sentence, he declares that that does not negate human responsibility. He says, woe to the man by which this comes. So what's interesting here is, is that we see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man drawn both together in the same sentence by Jesus. How do they come together? I don't know. But I know the Bible tells me this is true. Jesus tells me this is true right here in the same sentence. So I must believe. I must believe that God is sovereign and that that sovereignty does not excuse me of my sin. It's a biblical truth that we must confront. And so what happens then? They hear about this betrayal and then they begin to question one another. Who do you think it is that's done it? And this leads to defenses. They begin to lean to their own merit. Peter says, well, it couldn't be me. I follow Jesus all this time. I walked on water. Matthew says, yeah, but you just had a boat. Do you know how much money I gave up when I left being a tax collector? It's not me. John might say, really, are either of you called a son of thunder? You know it's not me. Do you see what they start doing? They start moving from defending Jesus to declaring their own worth and merit. And then it spills over into an absurd scene. Could you imagine? This is the last meal they will have with their Savior. He's telling them about his suffering and death. He's telling them someone's going to betray them. And they start having a contest about who's greatest. It's ridiculous. But I'm glad Luke tells us this. Because it reminds us of how much we need Jesus. They're there with Jesus in the clearest moment they have so far of redemptive history. And they cannot keep their sin in check by themselves. Just a moment away from Jesus and they're a mess. Do you feel like that sometimes? Like you're a mess? Then you need to stick close to Jesus. You need to seek after Him. He is the solution. You see, Jesus tells them what the standard is. He sets a standard. He says, you're aware of this. The Gentiles, they want to be at the top rung. If you're king, they'll call you a benefactor. And you could be a benefactor if you torture people, kill people, rob people. As long as you're at the top rung, people will say good things about you. He says, but that's not the reality of the world. Because the real standard is the standard that I set, says Jesus. He says, who's more important, the one who served or the one who serves? And everyone in the world thinks it's the one who served. No one says, when I grow up, I hope I can go to college and become a butler. No one says that. They want to become a director of a hedge fund and have three butlers. But you see, Jesus says, that's the way of the world. If I've come and come to serve, then that is the standard. That is the greatest thing that you should look to. And in this you will receive a kingdom. Jesus gives them provision of a kingdom. He calls them to remain faithful. He reminds them of their past faithfulness. He says, you have been with me through my trials. You've been through me, with me through my past work. Jesus has the true authority here. 
He's the one who's in control. He tells them he can dispense authority and blessing and kingdom. And no matter what anyone else thinks, he will lay down his life for his own purpose and will. Jesus is in control. And this is our great hope, isn't it? It's our great hope is to be with Jesus. It's our great hope to receive more than we had ever dreamed, and we receive it at the hands of the one who is truly king. Do you trust the Lord Jesus Christ? He calls upon you today to follow after him, to seek him, that he might bless you, that you might know forgiveness, and that you might dwell with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning for your word. We thank you, O Lord, that you have told us all that we need to know to understand your purpose and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Help us to apply it to our hearts and to our lives. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.